How are you? It's good to see you. We had a great time last week, did we not? Those of us who were here, we had uh, a shared communion service with uh, Beth Star Shalom with our Jewish fellowship that usually meets on Saturday morning. And, and then we had uh, the Korean, our Korean fellowship, uh, Plano One Community Church that was with us as well. So if you missed last Sunday, you missed a real blessing, a real opportunity to see uh, the family of God, the family of Christ in a more expanded kind of a way and uh, cross-generational and cross-cultural. And, and, uh, and we, were, we really were blessed. There's a lot going on here. But we're going to be, guess what? We get to be back in Colossians this morning. I'm excited. I hope you are. All right, let's read. All right, Colossians. We're back, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 12, and I'm going to focus on one verse this morning because I am taking my sweet time. I don't know about you, but I just want to make sure we really get what Paul is saying to us in this text because there's some critical stuff that he is addressing about the Christian life and about how the sanctification process in the Christian life. So beginning with verse 12, therefore... Chapter 3, therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's our identity. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, the agape, a love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, Jill and Sam, my kids, and my beautiful uh, granddaughter, right as we speak, are vacationing at a little cabin on a lake just outside of, uh, of Brainerd, Wisconsin, with my sis and one of her friends. And so yesterday morning, I'm in my study, and very, very early, I mean, it was around probably 6.30, I get this kind of cryptic text. And said, I've been in the study, and I've been thinking about, about how we're to clothe ourselves in proper attire, what every Christian ought to be wearing, because that's the verb here in verse 12, the imperative in verse 12 and I get this cryptic text on my phone from daughter Jill that just says, baby moon. And, and Deb and I, we're in separate rooms, but we're both kind of scratching, scratching our head trying to figure out and wondering what that message meant. And one minute later, there's this other text with this picture of my granddaughter, Ryan. I saw the connection. <laughs> Paul is talking about sanctification here, how the Christian matures, grows in relationship with Christ. And see, in five times in the first paragraphs of chapter 3, Paul has uses the, he used this clothing metaphor. And hopefully you remember that as he begins chapter 3, he has these two lists, each with five things on the list, five nouns, and, and like clothing that has to be stripped off. And the second list, the second list of harmful or evil ways of speaking and relating to each other, you know, see, right after that list, he includes 
One more list, and it's a list with one thing on it to emphasize that one thing. And that is after, after the other two lists, he says, stop lying to one another. You remember that? Now, Paul is kind of mixed metaphors here in, in this section because he's talking about sanctification and, and, he be, and, and, and sanctification has two parts. You remember two parts, mortification, right? And vivification, that there's some things that have to die about the flesh, about the past, about the old self. And, and, and at the same time, there's some, there's some things that have to be brought to life in us and are brought to life, not on our own power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here, the beauty of this is that these, these things are working simultaneously in us and not separate. You know, we are never left naked like Baby Ryan. You see, because the moment that we enter into relationship with Christ on the basis of what he's done, that's chapter 1 and 2 in Colossians, what happens? We are clothed in his righteousness. Okay? We are clothed in his righteousness. And then we on the basis of relationship with him, we begin to add to our faith and our trust in him and our relationship with him. We begin to add these virtues. As we strip off the old grave clothes, the old rags, we begin to put on new clothes. But we are never left naked. Now, let me just ask you, remember, go back and think about Genesis chapter 3. Okay, Before Adam and Eve fell, they were naked and they were not ashamed, were they? But then because of sin, because the world became a fallen place, and when Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden, who made clothes for Adam and Eve? God himself made their clothing. And it's the same in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And when you enter into relationship with him, you are clothed in his righteousness. Now listen, here's the picture you need to see. Prodigal son comes back from a faraway land. Remember the story? Remember the prodigal son? And he comes back you know, to the father. The father runs off the porch. The father kisses and embraces him you know, because he's come back repentant and broken and, you know, and ready to receive you know, from the father. But he wants to be a slave, and the father says what? Bring what? the finest robe, and put it on him. The first thing the father says is not, give him a bath, clean him up, strip him down. What is the father? What's the first thing the father says? Put the robe on him. It's the robe of righteousness on him. You see? And that robe covers his rags, but from that point on, how does God see you know, how does, how does the father see the son? He sees him as righteous. You get it? And this is the same. 
You see, when we come to Christ, there's still going to be some rags. There's still going to be some stuff in our life that's got to get stripped away. You know what I'm saying? But the moment we put our faith, our trust in what Christ has done, Colossians 1 and 2, what happens for us is we are clothed in his righteousness, and then he begins to strip off, and we participate. We must participate in that. It's, it's in cooperation with the Holy Spirit that we mortify or we strip away the grave clothes, and then it is with our cooperation and only with our cooperation that we begin to put on. He says, clothe yourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and and what? Patience. But we're never left naked before him because of the grace that is lavished upon us. Okay. Okay, so in the last time we looked at Colossians, I gave you an overview of, of Colossians three twelve through 17. And, and we looked at, we, you know, th- this is the first positive imperative that we find in, you know, in, in chapter 3. And that is to clothe yourselves. And we looked at the fact that there are, there's an apparel for the Christian. And then there's the application of that. And then there's the the apex, in the same way, in the same structure that Paul uses earlier in the first part of the chapter where he lists five things, and then he gives a list of one. He does the same thing here. He gives five virtues, five nouns, and then he gives, in verse 14, he gives us a list of one. He says, and above all, clothe yourselves in love because that's what binds them all together. So he sets love apart as that which is overarching and covers all. But where I want us to focus today is on verse 13. I want you to, because I'm not satisfied that you and I really understand what this means, what this, this, what this, what this verse means practically in our lives. Okay, so let's read it. This is the English Standard Version. I'm going to read it also in the New American Standard Version. Here you go. Ready? Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, let me read it in the, in the New American Standard. Okay, because the New American Standard gives you a clearer sense of the fact that these two key words are participial. They're not, they're not nouns or verbs. They're participles. Bearing as you are bearing with one another and forgiving. As you are forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, you see, there are two words in the, in the Greek for the idea of patience. You know, and, and both of those words appear in the text. The, the first word, the word patience, appears in, at the end of verse 12 as one of the virtues. And it's the word hupomeno, and, it, and it's, it's formed from two words. Hupo means to under, under, and meno is to remain or to dwell. Under, to dwell. And it literally communicates the, the, the idea that, that the one who is patient is one who, who remains under the load, who, who, who is under the circumstances, you know what I'm saying, but is not, you know, but it, they're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're finding strength and the ability to deal with and to tackle and to handle circumstances. They are under, you know, they are remaining under. They are patient. They're remaining under. 
And the interesting thing about that word, hupomeno, is that word is never assigned to God the Father. God is never, you know, called patient in that way as remaining under. And, and my guess about that is that God is never under the circumstances. He's always above the circumstances. He's always in control of circumstances. He can change your circumstances in a moment, can't he? Because he's in control. If he leaves your circumstances and asks you to remain under, it's because he's more interested in your character than your circumstances. And he wants to develop character. And so he, so he, he lets us hupo meno. He lets us remain under difficult circumstances and struggles and sometimes to suffer for a reason. But God, that, now that word is used, the word, that word patience is used of Christ several times in Testament because Christ as a human had to endure the same suffering that we do. So in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured, he remained under the pressure and the stress and the pain and the agony of the cross. But for God the Father, God in heaven, that word is not used. The word that is used to speak of God's patience is the next word, the word here, forbearing. The word we find in verse 13, the second of the Greek words, which is macrothumia. And macro, you understand, because you've all had macroeconomics, right? It's living, it's living large. It's, it's world kind of scope you know, macro, large, thumia, passion. So it's, there's nothing indifferent about it or passive about it. It's a very active kind of a word. It's an active kind of, 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 of patience. But literally the word communicates this idea of long or large suffering. You know, or, or, or long or heavy and huge bearing, carrying heavy loads. It's a, it's a word, interestingly enough, that's used of God when, we, when, when God's patience is being spoken of. And I, I think, you know, the application for me is simply this, is that, you know, what Paul is saying is, is that as you you know, are remaining under, and you're being patient. As you put on those five virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, you know, and patience, as, as you put those virtues on, and you begin to build those virtues into your life, you know, what will happen is the result is, is you'll, begin, you'll begin to be like God in his heart, to be more long-suffering, and to bear heavier, you know, and, and, and greater loads for each other and for him. Macrothumia. You know, so the word communicates this idea of self-restraint and self-control. Long-suffering. Slow to get angry. Self-control. It, it doesn't lash back. It's, it's, not ever, it's never hasty, you know, to react uh, it is it is the opposite of of anger. It is it, it seeks always first to understand. It is always associated with the idea of mercy, of applying mercy. 
It doesn't give up on people. It, it hangs in there. It's committed for the long haul. This is a really, really good word. Now, here's what's interesting about this, okay? These two participles. The second one is forgiveness, okay? The second one is forgiveness, okay? I'll talk about forgiveness, then I want to come back to the participle, okay? Forgiveness is the word afeme. It, it is a, a very familiar word in the New Testament. Uh, it, it literally translates the idea that we let go of something. We let go of something, or we cancel something out, or we leave something. We send something away, or we leave something behind. You see how this idea of the different kind of things that we would say about forgiveness might apply? Hey, go let go of that. Just, just leave that behind. That's in the past. You understand how those kind of phrases would get attached to this idea of forgiveness? Uh, it is a uh, it is a word that, that communicates the idea of canceling a, a debt. Now, interestingly enough, listen, it's, that particular word is used 142 times in the New Testament. Listen, 142 times in the New Testament. 47 in the Gospel of Matthew, 34 in the Gospel of Mark, 34 in the Gospel of Luke, 14 in the Gospel of John. That adds up to 134. That means there's only 13 more places to put forgive in the New Testament after the Gospels. I thought that was extremely interesting. I had to go back and look at that. Are you kidding me? What does that mean? 142 times and only 13 times in Paul's letters in the general epistles and Revelation. The overwhelming majority of the, of the forgives are found in the Gospels because it's from the teaching of Jesus and it is of the, it is the, the sacrifice of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And so the important thing that you remember from, you know, from our discussion is the reason why the emphasis, emphasis and the focus is on the gospel is because you do not separate forgiveness from the person and work of Christ. And certainly not in your life. Which brings me to this, to the participles, okay? Because these are, these two words for, for, you know, forbearing and forgiving are present passive participles. Present means they're happening now. A participle means it's continuous action. It's as you are, you know, continuing. You're, you're continuing to be forbearing, continuing to be forgiving. So it's, it's, it's the now, it's, it's happening now, and it's continuing. But the passive mood is, is different because it's not your activity that's doing it. You're, you're passive. It's happening to you. This forbearing and this forgiving is something that's not coming from you. Where's it coming from? From the power of God and the Holy Spirit in your life. You see, so it's really okay. It's really okay for you to go before the Lord and say, God, I can't stand this longer. I can't forbear. I can't take one more step. God... That hurt me so bad, I can never forgive that. 
And he says, I know. That's why you'll need me. Forbearing and forgiving are a journey that you cannot make alone. There are some of us in this room that if we're honest, things have been done to us, things have happened to us, hurts have come into our life that we could never conceive of being able to forgive. But Paul says, if you enter into a relationship with him, he will clothe you in his righteousness. He will not leave you naked out there. But he will, he will see you as complete and perfect in the finished work of Christ. And then, and then he'll help you strip off the old. He'll help you begin to put on the new. He'll help you put on the virtues of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and, and patience. And it will be his power in you, his power applied to your life that you will find, you will be experiencing, I, I am I'm able to forgive that. I'm able to let that go. I'm able to get closure on that. Maybe not immediately, but I'm getting closure on that. Corey Ten Boom described forgiveness this way. It's like letting go of a rope. Letting go of a rope like you're ringing a church bell. You know, and when you're ringing a church bell, you have to, you know, you pull all your weight on that and you start pulling. It takes a, it takes a little bit before it really starts ringing. But as long as you keep pulling on that rope and you put, keep putting your, your, you know, expending your energy to pull that rope, that bell quits ringing, ringing. But when you forgive, you let go of the rope. Does the bell stop ringing? No, not at first. The momentum will continue to carry, and you may continue to hear the sound of that bell for some time, but then slowly it will begin to slow, and it will begin to fade in your life, and then one day you will realize, I'm completely free. I think it's a great description. What I want to do this morning is um, just to try to, in an effort to bring some clarity to what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not to speak to that for just a moment in in the last minutes that I have, okay? Would you allow me to do that? Okay, this isn't rocket science, and, and, uh, you know, I didn't do, you know, all the research. I have some experience with having to forgive people, yes. I also have some experience with really struggling to forgive people, yes. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, but uh, the writings of Lewis Smead on forgiveness, wonderful. Um, uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's so amazing about grace has two fabulous chapters on forgiveness. Actually, it probably applies more than that, but, but they're two specifically that just focus on this, this, this idea of forgiveness and letting go, and I, and I recommend him. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I, I want to just say to you that uh, Mark Driscoll's work on, on forgiveness um, on this idea of what forgiveness is not is something that I went to this week and just meditated and thought through, okay, what, what is forgiveness? What does it look like? What is it and what is it not? Okay, so are you ready? Just ride with me. I'm going to be quick. 
Forgiveness is canceling a debt. Forgiveness is canceling a debt. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And the best translation goes this way. Forgive us our debtors as we forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, you know, as, as we forgive our debtors. Did I say that right? That's the best translation. It's because that's the word in, in, the, in the Greek. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So forgiveness has everything to do with this idea of cancellation of a debt, of saying, I'm not going to make you pay for that. I've decided I'm not going to make you pay for that. Now, secondly, forgiveness is removing the control that that other person or that offender has over you. It's removing the control that they have over you over you. If you have been hurt, you see, you will have to make a choice. If you've been hurt, offended, you know what I'm saying, or wronged in some way, you can either dis- determine that you're going to become bitter about it or you're going to forgive. It's, it's bitterness or forgiveness. That's the choice that you will make. Every time. When you choose to forgive, you remove control, the control that that offender has over your life because if you carry that resentment that person still has control over you now listen and i like what mark driscoll said jesus is not functional practical lord of your life because who you are is and how you respond is largely now dictated by what they have done that person has done not by what he as in christ has done now, what I like about that is the reality is when you forgive, you're taking back control. Not taking control for yourself. You're not back in control. You're putting Christ back on the throne and letting him be in control. It's present, passive participle. Forgiveness, third, is giving yourself a gift. Not just giving the other person a gift, but it's giving yourself a gift. You're giving yourself permission to move on, to, to stop carrying the stress, the tension, the load, uh, the, the anxiety. I love what Lewis Smead has said. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and then to discover that the prisoner was you. It's giving yourself a gift. Fourth, forgiveness is surrendering your need for revenge. It's giving up your need for revenge. Romans 12, 19. You're familiar with the word, this verse. Vengeance is mine. That's God speaking. He doesn't say vengeance is yours. He says vengeance is mine. Thus says the Lord. See, we're not sanctioning injustice here. But what we're saying is, I'm going to leave judgment in the hands of God. I'm going to turn it over to the court who has a perfect judge. I'm surrendering my need. I'm trusting God and surrendering my need to get revenge, to do something to get back. Forgiveness is fifth. Forgiveness is leaving ultimate justice in God's hands. It's Letting loose, turning loose, and leaving ultimate justice in God's hands. 
We all love justice, don't we? Love to see justice. You think God doesn't? That's huge with God. He loves justice. If you love justice, you're just, you're just in his backyard. And, I mean, you're hanging out at his place. He loves justice. And we recognize, though, that justice, justice happens ultimately in one of two places. It either happens at the cross or it happens in the future at the judgment seat of Christ, of God. When all stand before him. And justice and all things are made right. And so when you forgive, you are leaving ultimate justice into God's hands. Our hope and desire is that the one who has wronged us or hurt us or offended us or wounded us will come to the cross in repentance. But we do trust that if they don't, one day justice will be served. Sixth, forgiveness is a journey. It's a journey. It's not a one-time event. (laughs) Man, I learned that one some years ago. Deeply wounded by someone very significant in my life. And I remember getting in my car, driving away from the scene of the crime, you know, and almost immediately... The Spirit of God said, what are you going to do with this, Dave? And I said, I'm going to choose to walk the path of forgiveness. Trust me, that wasn't a one-time event. I had to keep forgiving that person over and over and over again. Because every time I was around them, I felt the same pain, the same struggle, this, you know, the same hurt. The wound was opened fresh again and again and again. Because it's a process, it's a journey. And what you do is you choose that path that you're going to walk. Because they can hurt you again. They may wound you again. The rabbis in Jesus' day had a saying, they had a teaching, that someone should forgive someone two or three times before you wrote them off. And the disciples came to Jesus to get instruction from him in the matter. And what was his answer? Lord, how many times do we have to forgive? And he said, 70 times 7. Which is like saying, stop keeping count. 7th forgiveness is wanting good for your adversary. It's wanting good to happen in the life of that other person who has hurt you or harmed you. You will know that you've come to a place that you have forgiven them when you will bless them. No longer curse them, but you will bless them. And you will wish them well and you will want good things to happen for them. You will wish for their growing relationship with God and their success in life and in relationship instead of wishing that 
you know, waiting around hoping you get to watch them crash and burn. See, forgiveness is when you can wish them well. Now, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Because we're seeking clarity here for a moment. What, let, let me just say, what, what forgiveness is not, number one, it's not denying or diminishing the sin or the evil that was done to you. If it was wrong and inappropriate, it was sin. And forgiving does not diminish that. It does not deny the sin. It, because we believers, we recognize that the cross of Christ represents the fact that he came to die for sin. And God took sin seriously. We don't take it you know, nonchalantly and carelessly and, and deny the reality of the sin. We acknowledge the hurt, the pain, the wrong. It's not to deny sin. Forgiveness is not enabling someone, participating with them, you know, in their, in their muck and mire and mess and continuing to enable them, enabling bad behavior. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness may come with confrontation, do you realize? It may require us to, you know, to actually confront the, act, the action. Often it does. Forgiveness does not require, listen, does not require an apology. Right. I can't forgive them. They, they, they didn't say they were sorry. They may never say they were sorry. They, they, may, they may never even be willing to recognize what they did that harmed you. You might not even see them, ever see them again. If you're, you know, waiting around for an apology before you forgive someone, you're going to be eaten alive. You know, you've chosen bitterness rather than forgiveness. You know, because forgiveness is not... It is not requiring an apology. Forgiveness is not removing responsibility from that person for, you know, for crimes against us. It's not removing responsibility. Let me just ask you, can you forgive someone and still call the cops? You better say yes. I, uh, I was in a fender bender about uh, a month ago. Y- y'all didn't know that. My car's fixed now, so don't go look. Okay. Uh, but, you know, but I, uh, I changed lanes and I ran over this young Indian couple. They were students at UT Dallas and, uh, and just bashed in the side of their car. And we got both the cars stopped. And I ran up as they were rolling their window down, you know, whatever. And I was apologizing profusely. I am so sorry. I mean, I apologize. I asked for their forgiveness. Did I get back in my car, you know, start it up and just drive off? No, we called the cops. Sat there and waited for the cops. Now, I was, I was very for, I got grace because I told the cop the truth. I, I said it was my fault and not their fault. You know, they, get, they made us go to two sides of the parking lot, you know, so you could go talk to them over here and get the story. And then he comes over and he asked me the story and I tell him the same story they told. And, you know, hey, man, I've already apologized, sir. It was my fault. I changed lanes. I, you know, they were kind of in my blind spot. I didn't see him and I just hit him. And the cop said, this is so refreshing. <laughs> you know, in Plano, Texas, this is so refreshing. To actually have somebody where the stories actually match up and somebody tells the truth. You know, so, so he looked at me and said, 
you know what? I'm not going to write you a ticket. So I got grace. But you see, but the, the point of that is, is that, you know, said, I didn't go apologize and ask for forgiveness and then get in my car and drive away. You know, let them deal with the aftermath. You know, somebody's got to fix their car, right? I'm glad I had insurance. But the reality is, is that, you know, sometimes, you know, you, what you've got to recognize is that, that there are some offenses. There are some things that are done to you, you know, I'm saying where, where a person has got to take responsibility legally, relationally, you know, responsibility before the church of Jesus Christ. They can't just be let, allowed to get away with it. Does that make sense? There's got to be some accountability. And so to forgive someone does not mean you remove accountability or you take away responsibility. You do. Fifth, forgiving is not forgetting. It's a big one. Forgiving is not forgetting. We say it's stuff like that. Well, we just have to forgive and forget, don't we? Um, you know, can't you just let go of that? Just forgive and forget. Or, or we even quote a verse from Jeremiah 31 where it says, God says, I will remember their sins no more, that God chooses to forget our sins. And so we, we say, you know, hey, the, God, the God, godly thing to do would be for you to forgive and, and to forget. Guys, trust me, this omniscient, all-knowing God that we worship does not forget anything. There is not a list somewhere of the stuff that God no longer knows. He knows everything. That's what omniscience is. The fact is, is that God chooses to see us and interact with us on the basis of what Christ has done for us because he has robed us in righteousness. So that's what God sees when he looks at us. He sees Christ in us, working in us. He doesn't relate to us on the basis of what we've done. He chooses to see us in Christ as a new creation in him. You see, we don't need to forget because sometimes wisdom is not forgetting. I like what Thomas Schwaza says. A stupid person neither forgives nor forgets. That's a stupid person. He can neither forgive nor forget. The naive person will forgive and forget. But the wise person will forgive and not forget. They'll learn from what happened, from the experience. I love the story of Ruth Graham Bell. She was speaking at a women's conference. And a woman came up, and, and in a few moments after Ruth Graham Bell had spoken, she tried to stir up strife. You know, she, she started recounting the story of a woman who, had, who really had done great harm to Ruth Graham Bell. You know, Ruth, you remember the story? You remember that time and, and just kind of start, brought this lady's name up and started telling this story about this horrendous thing that this woman had done to Ruth Graham Bell? And Ruth Graham Bell just stopped her in mid-sentence and said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. I love that. I distinctly remember forgetting that. Do you hear what she said? She said, you know, I recognize I can never forget, but I can choose. I can choose to remember forgetting that. 
moving beyond and forgiving. But forgiving is not forgetting. Number six, forgiving or forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness is not trusting. You hear that? There are a lot of people that will ask for your forgiveness and then immediately they won't trust back. See, trust is something that has to be built over time with some consistency, doesn't it? But trust can be can be broken. Trust can be undermined. Trust can be lost in a moment's time, in a very short time, right? When you forgive, that doesn't mean you automatically go back to trust because trust in the relationship would have to be rebuilt. So, you know, think about it. So, you know, so a husband has an affair on a wife. She can choose to forgive him and communicate that I have chosen to forgive you. Does that mean that she's going to trust him? You think she's not going to want to, you know, look at his emails, who he's, you know, emailing or who, you know, he's texting on his phone. I mean, you think she's not going to feel this twinge, you know what I'm saying, of, of distrust if she's, if he's hanging out at church and he's in a conversation with, by himself with a woman somewhere on the, you know, after the church service. You think, you think not? You think trust is just, no. Forgiving is not trusting. Forgiving is forgiving. Trust has to be rebuilt, and it has to be rebuilt over time and with consistency, with commitment, intentionality, with dedication. And last, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness does not mean you necessarily reconcile a relationship. You realize you can forgive someone, but for there to be, for there to be a reconciliation, one person has to repent, another person has to forgive, and then what happens? And then there's reconciliation. It takes two. You see, but forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. Forgiveness opens the door for reconciliation. If I forgive you for something you've done for me, essentially what I'm doing is I'm putting out my hand to say, I I forgive. You know, if I treat you in a way that demonstrates that I don't hold a grudge against you, you know, that I love and I care for you, if I wish you well and I bless you, if I reach out my hand in forgiveness, what happens? It creates the opportunity for reconciliation that that person may decide to take my hand and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. And when that happens, when there's repentance, one repents, and one forgives, what happens? There's reconciliation. Let's pray.